5 says that the anxiety of the heart causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. My heart today is that for any of you overriddled with anxiety today, will find the good word of the good news of Jesus Christ and today be delivered. In Psalm 73, it was the psalmist Asaph who said, I almost stumbled when I saw the prosperity of the weak. And I think he's being kind to himself to say he almost stumbled. He says that their eyes bulge with adult with abundance. Their mouths are against the heavens. They're always at ease. And he says, all day long, I've been, on the other hand, of that plague. So I've been chastened every morning. So when I thought to understand this, he says, it was too painful for me for it to even think about. But then I went into the sanctuary of God and I saw their end. There are two kinds of hopelessness. There's the kind where hope is missing and then there's the kind where hope is removed. In a case of hope is missing, we kind of get it. We're taught that we're sort of a succession of fortuitous biological accidents with no purpose, so don't go look for one. And you're really, there's no such thing as miracles, so don't certainly be one. But on the other side of it, God is testifying that you are an intentional creation by a God who only makes masterpieces who's never made mistakes, and you will not be his first one. And you were invented for a purpose. And the purpose was not to worship him. The purpose was not to serve him or even give him glory. The purpose was to be with him. Everything else will follow suit. God created you to be with him. And yet as we look at this particular story now, as we kind of delve in for a moment, we're going to pray, of course, and we're going to see... Three character types here, the weeper, the wanderer, and the worrier, all of which will end up being the worshiper by the end of the story. And I don't know where you came in this morning. I don't know where you started. But I know where God wants you to end up. All the tumult, all the unrest, all of the times of freak out and worry and stress, and the lines we put in our heads for it, the way we age ourselves, the way we go aimlessly from one thing to the next, just looking for something meaningful. Oh, my God wants you so desperately today. He dragged you into this place of all places. This old 180-year-old church. Some of you probably thought you'd never wind up in a building like this. To hear of all things an American, God help you. So pray with me, would you please? Lord, in this time, as you open up the scriptures to us, please open up our hearts to the hope you have laid before us here. And I recognize God here. As you say in Jeremiah 17, 7, blessed is the man who trusts in you, whose hope is in you. In Isaiah 26, 3, how you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. And how in Psalm 110, who believes in you will never be put to shame. You mean it. So please open our hearts, God, to this now. May we be captivated by your word every minute, not a moment of minds wander here, but rather commandeer our attention and totally captivate us in your presence by your word now. And may we have your word bespoke to each of us. So God, take my lips and attach them to your heart. Pour forth your Holy Spirit in such a way that every one of us individually receives the ministry you intend now in this time. Please have your way. We commit ourselves to you. 
pray you would bring salvation to this house. That you'd bring hope to this house. You'd bring healing to this house. Encouragement, strength, equipping all the things you intend your word to do now. So have at us. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Never just assume someone is right because they speak with passion or authority or whatever the case is. Take that beautiful book that God put in your laps and test everything to it, me included. I'm not the final say in anything. Praise God for that. Of our character story, we have three groups. The first are the weepers. We see in verse 1, they and other women. Well, that's a fun way to start a chapter. They and other women. Who are the they and the other women? Well, back, by the way, two verses prior in 2355, and if you're in your Bible, that should be easy to find. We read, women that had come to him from Galilee followed him, and they observed the tomb and his body where it was laid, and they returned with fragrant spices, fragrant oils and prepared spices. But they rested on the Shabbat according to the commandment. Jesus was crucified on a Friday between 10 and 3. I'm sorry, between 12 and 3. We read it was dark between that period of time. And in that particular period of time, then, we are preparing for what we would call Shabbat. Shabbat is the Sabbath. Sabbath is not a Sunday. It's a Saturday. It is, uh, if you think about it, the last day of the week. Sunday, actually, contrary to some calendars, is actually the first day of the week. And it begins at sundown. So between 12 and 3 then, it is by 3 preparation for the, su- for the sundown. You don't want anything left undone by sundown because you can't do it at that point. Shabbat is, means rest and you are supposed to rest. So the guards recognizing this was the case took the three Jewish people, appearingly Jewish people, certainly Jesus, the one in the middle uh, is, and had them break the legs of the two on the outsides because that way they would die quicker. So they could be dead before Shabbat, so they could be taken down if they were to be cared for by any of their Jewish relatives. Jesus, on the other hand, they found, strangely enough, already dead, so there's no need to break his bones, which is important because it fulfills Psalm 34, which says not a bone would be broken. So Jesus is already dead. They take him down, but it's now 3 p.m., and as it's 3 p.m., the Sabbath is drawing near, and Joseph of Arimathea, who we only read in this particular part of the story, who had been a ruling member, not accepting or approving of the trials that Jesus had undergone. And, and by the way, it needed to be a unanimous decision to put someone to death. He, of course, was not in agreement with the decision to put Jesus to death, so that was one of the ways they broke their own laws. But now it's 3 p.m. and he doesn't have a lot of time. So Jesus is taken down and he anoints him as quickly as he can with Nicodemus, an earlier follower we see from John 3. Like most ruling party members, they have wealthy tombs that come with their wealthy lifestyles. His is a burrowed out cave to which no one had laid. Nearby was a garden. And with that then, Jesus quickly and, if you will, sort of as haphazardly as you could, as quickly as possible, was anointed. And understand, what you usually did is you took a person's body weight in aloes, myrrh, and cinnamon, and you took then the strips of linen and wrapped them. It's interesting, Jesus will enter the world, if you will, and exit the world, in essence, in the same condition, swaddled in linen. It is important to note, I don't know how much of you are familiar with aloe, those of you who have ever gotten a really good sunburn, or might I say a bad sunburn, you kind of know what happens if you really cake it on and give it a chance to dry. It becomes really crispy, not just your skin. 
So consider the idea here that Jesus is wrapped in this linen and then covered in this elomer and cinnamon. So it's basically making it like a body cast. That is important to note. It wasn't like so basically what someone did is put on sort of a mummy outfit, you know, where they kind of the strings kind of hang on the ends and all that. No, 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 no. Jesus was actually in like a cocoon. And that is really fundamental here. So he's so the women, by the way, it is it is Jewish tradition to out of respect. You can anoint a body up to seven days past its death. So these women, knowing that Jesus hadn't been given a real proper burial, have gone now to um, the tomb completely unaware of everything that's transpired since then. They see Jesus being taken down. They see him being put into the tomb. They see him quickly anointed. They see the stone being rolled over so they know where they're looking. And off they go because it's Sabbath and they need to get out because the punishment for breaking the Sabbath is death. That's a pretty good deterrent. So the women go back unaware of the fact that the one people who are not resting are the religious leaders who have now gone to petition Pilate for a Roman guard and a Roman seal for which they receive. So now the tomb checked again, now sealed, closed up, of course, sealed so that anybody that gets past it will, of course, not only they would die, but their family and their city would die as a result of it. It's a, it's a good deterrent as well. And the guard is posted. Every four hours, same four, four different guys are then coming for the Roman guard. Uh, three to four hours, it all depends on who you look at. Now the girls don't know that. All the girls know is love, and they're seeing things through the broken shards of their tears as they look now and recognize that they would rather be with a dead Jesus than a living world. And so off they go. Before it's sunrise, because you can't still, I mean, even though the end of Shabbat actually is at sunset, a bunch of women aren't going to go at sunset in the dark through the streets. That's foolish. They're asking for trouble. So during that time, they're preparing their spices because they couldn't do that during the Sabbath. And then off they go, the first chance they get at morning light. Right before it's dawn, they're out of the house dragging them. And imagine there's like these four gals, or however many gals we see, they and other women, are dragging this giant tub, if you will, of aloe, myrrh, and cinnamon. Roughly about that of about uh, somewhere between 10 to 15 stone. Gives you an idea. That's a lot of, an- of, of anointment. And as they're dragging it, Somewhere down the line, they start thinking pragmatically, like, how are we going to roll away the stone? You see, they hadn't thought of those details because all they thought about was being with Jesus. Interesting, in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say to the women, why do you weep? And they are weeping. They are weeping because all they want to do is see Jesus one last time. But when they get there, of course, things are a little bit quite strange to them because they see the stone rolled away. They didn't expect that. They must have seen the broken seal. They don't see the Roman guards. They have already passed out like pansies and then fled for refuge into the temple. Interesting, by the way, when you see angels, even though you guys are basically from the Delta Force, you don't go to your boss at that point. You go see a priest. I find it interesting. Jesus wasn't there and Jesus is an early riser. Two things I can learn about this. I try to teach my children. One is Jesus is an early riser. The other is that he cleans his room before he leaves. I've noticed he actually set his things intact, including folded up the napkin uh, that had covered his face. Now, now consider this. The stone wasn't rolled away to get Jesus out. The guy could go through walls at this point. It's obviously not for that purpose, but the stone was rolled away to get us in so we could see he wasn't there. So the women come running in, and as the women come running in, what they notice is something even stranger than just Jesus being gone, and that is that that body cast was still there. Now that's strange, because if you're going to steal a body, why on earth would you pop it out of the cocoon to carry it? 
What good would that do? So they go and they grab this. Uh, they grab the hope that's still in there at the moment and freak out because they don't know what in the world is going on. And what Mark, John teach us in their Gospels is that they all of a sudden see two angels, one at the foot and one at the head in between a bloody seat where Jesus had been laid. Interesting, because it reminds me of the ark where you see one angel at the foot, one at the head with the bloody mercy seat in between. And now they say, and they say, why are you looking for the living among the place of the dead? Now understand where Jesus is, there's not death. Where Jesus is, there is life. There's the point of it. And where you are is you're looking where dead people are. And Jesus isn't dead, so you're not going to find him here. But I understand when Jesus says, ultimately as Jesus sends these angels, as these angels speak to them, they're weeping because they see a loss and they don't see Jesus. They can't find Jesus. And understand, the comfort into those weepers was, don't you remember what Jesus said to you? For the weeper... For the one with the broken heart who comes in here today that God promises he'll never, re- he'll never reject a broken heart. It's the one sacrifice God's really looking for. And what we're going to see is he always seems to be revealed in the broken. Might I say that the one place that will bring you comfort more than any is, can you remember what Jesus said to you? And if you don't know what Jesus would have said to you, then I suggest you get in the Gospels and see for yourself. Interesting, though, in our text, as we look at this, This is what I can tell you. If I went through the Gospel of Matthew to see this is what Jesus had personally said to them. Matthew 16, 21 says this. As Peter has confessed Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God at Caesarea Philippi. We read, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. I think that'd be pretty clear. Oh, they don't get it. By the next chapter, Jesus is transfigured on the mount, appropriately, of transfiguration. And as they came down from it, Jesus says, Now don't tell anyone about this until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. There it is again. Just three verses later, as they're asking, Well, what about Elijah? And he says, Well, Elijah has come through John the Baptist in this. And they did to him whatever they wanted. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer in their hands. Or at their hands. And then... Ten verses later, in Matthew 17, 22, he says, While he's in Galilee, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Three chapters later, Matthew 20, verse 17, or 18, it says, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed into the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles, and mock and scourge and crucify him. But on the third day, he will raise again. Understand, that's at least five different times Jesus made really clear he was going to die and be resurrected. I don't know how many times you need to be told something, but when it's so contrary to what you're used to, it's really hard to hear. Especially when, as Peter would say, we've given up everything to follow you. This was not a hope rejected. A hope dismissed. This was a hope As if you will, life had been, someone had barged into your house and completely ransacked and stolen life right out of your being. When you had had a hope that you claimed and you said, this is what I'm banking my life on, I know this is true. And then you find it gone. And you think, how could this possibly ever resurrect? How could this possibly ever be redeemed? He's dead. Dead people stay dead. Which is interesting because Jesus didn't have a problem raising the dead. But when someone, when the razor dies, what do you do then? What this does, though, is it tells us Jesus couldn't have just been a good teacher 
or a prophet or a miracle worker or a moral person, and that was it. There's little argument these days of the existence of Jesus, that he ever came, that he ever lived, or that he ever died. The argument will always be over whether he was resurrected. And that is fundamental. And I want you to hear this, please, with your hearts, that in Romans 1-4, it tells us that he was declared to be the Son of God by the power working, if you will, to the spirit of holiness, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. When you have a group of people saying that God couldn't possibly have a son, and it becomes part of their mantra they have to pray every day, God says, you know how Jesus really is the Son of God? The only begotten, monogenes, literally the only one of his gene pool? It's through the resurrection. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, if you really don't believe in the resurrection, but you call yourself a Christian, you're the most pitiful person on the planet. Because you're removing yourself from the temporary pleasures for something that doesn't even exist in your mind. How stupid is that? This is what Jesus is resurrected. And all of our hope originates there. Because what separates Jesus from everyone else that's ever lived that's been a religious leader is that he's not still dead. And that does make a pretty radical difference. And our first group, and in our first reaction, might I say, and we'll see four reactions here, the first reaction is that they were greatly perplexed. They were weeping because they saw the loss. They were told by a messenger or messengers that he wasn't there, but he's alive. But they didn't meet him personally, not here at least. Ultimately, Mary Magdalene will make her way back. Jesus will speak, and she's still seeing through those sharded eyes of tears, can't see who he is and thinks he's the gardener. He says, sir, if you've taken him, could you show me where? And at that point, Jesus just can't take it anymore. And he calls her Mary, Mary. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And my sheep hear my voice. They know me. And the moment he calls her, she knows who it is. Interesting, because Mary, by the way, means bitter. An interesting thing to say at a moment like that. With the first group, and maybe that's you today. You kind of know that something's happened. I mean, how many people can follow this dead guy, this Jewish guy that lives thousands of miles away, lived thousands of years ago? And how is it that people are so devoted to him today? And they're not blowing themselves out or shooting people. I mean, let's face it, you could take thugs and put them in a gang and call it whatever you want. But people are actually being selfless and surrendered and changing in ways that you can't possibly imagine otherwise. And you kind of go, there's something weird. This just confuses me. I don't get it. But then you also see the politic and you see all this nastiness that has nothing to do with Jesus. And what you see really is the death, not the life. And I'm like, you're not going to find Jesus in those dead grave clothes. You're not going to find Jesus in that dead empty tomb. That dead empty tomb is where dead things stay. It's where death declares its victory. It's where death says, I win. But you realize Jesus looked and he said, is that all you got? And that's how that works there. So please hear me in this. If all you're seeing is the politic of man, of a fallen man, you kind of go, yeah, but that guy called himself a priest and look at what he did. Well, yeah, he could call himself whatever he wants. The devil masquerades himself as a minister of righteousness. That's what we read as an angel of light, and those who serve and pray as, as, as ministers of righteousness, just because someone called themselves something doesn't mean that they're really Christian. And we want to use that as an excuse. Well, can I just say, then chances are you really are perplexed, because chances are the person who brought you here today was very different from that. 
And you're like, I don't get it. This is really different. So the women run back. And when the women run back, they have to give this third-hand information. Angels told us Jesus wasn't there. Clearly, he wasn't there. We saw the cocoon. We saw the, the handkerchief that was where his face was. But we, there was no Jesus. And the second response then takes place in verse 9. It says, as they returned back to the eleven and the rest, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the women who were with them. We have a more distinct or a distinct uh, description of who the women were, who told these things to the apostles, and their words seemed to them like idle tales. They did not believe them. Maybe this is you. In the first case, you have a group that's greatly perplexed, and in the second group, you have a group that's quickly dismissed. They take the information as Jesus promised when the sower goes to sow the seed and the birds of the air come and eat the seed right out before it even has a chance to take root. You just listen and go, I'm not going to believe this nonsense people raised from the dead. What's sad is it was not unbelievers here. It was Jesus' students. That's what a disciple is. And an apostle is his emissary, his ambassador. Imagine those that are kind of the closest to you that Jesus has told on over five occasions this is going to happen. And now they kind of look and they're like, no possible way. No. Except one of them. And that's Peter in verse 12. We'll see it'll be two by the Gospel of John. John will make clear it wasn't just Peter, but John who ran to the tomb. John, of course, will make clear twice that he got to the tomb first. Exclusive, of course, to the Gospel of John. But let me ask you, is that you today? This quickly dismissed. Damn the evidence. I really don't care. I'm too smart for this stuff. Really? Could you really be so smart that you could stand before God and think that this is a good, good enough excuse for him? God, I couldn't choose to believe you because, well, there seemed to be too much evidence to the contrary, but I really wasn't willing to look at the evidence for you. What evidence do you need? You know, what's interesting. Do you remember when Jesus gives a parable? Do you know there's only one parable that Jesus gives where he uses a name? You aware of that? The name is Lazarus, by the way. And he tells us of a, of a rich man, a very wealthy man who lived and fared sumptuously. In other words, the guy, was, the guy had bling. He was very comfortable. And there was another person, a very poor man, who sat at his gate begging. Dogs would lick his open wounds. I mean, that's, that's pretty gross. And we read, ultimately, the two die. And as they both die, the one that fared sumptuously, of course, is brought to torment, not because he was wealthy, but because he refused the comfort of the living God and a relationship he was created for. This is where Lazarus, on the other hand, was brought to the comfort of Abraham's bosom, for which then the rich man cried out now because he's no longer the rich man. Dip your finger in the water. Lazarus, dip his finger in the water and bring it to me. And he's like, no, it's a chasm we can't cross right now, buddy. He says, well, what about my brothers? You need to go tell them. It's interesting, his response. His response is, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Yeah, yeah, but if someone would raise from the dead, and the answer is, listen, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone should raise from the dead. Interesting, because the religious leaders will be in that point. What are you quick to dismiss simply because somehow you think God's going to buy it? Who gave you that brain, that brilliance, the ability to analyze? But we should all know that real intelligence honestly weighs the evidence objectively. Well, Peter, on the other hand, we have in verse 12. We read that he arose and ran to the tomb and he stooped down, saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and departed marveling to himself what had happened. 
is where one group, of course, were just, as we saw, greatly perplexed, and the second quickly dismissed. The third, might I say, truly explored. Peter did more than just think about it. Peter did more than just interview. What Peter did is he went to the source. At this point, the whole report was there's an empty tomb. No matter who you want to interview, the wisest thing would be go to the tomb. Now, I'm not the one who quite quickly believes all the media. I mean, obviously, when something sort of hits, you kind of assume it's the case, like Belgium, for instance. But let's say you were skeptical, not cynical. Cynical says the evidence doesn't matter to you. You've already made up your mind. You're just going to pretend to be more open-minded than that. But skeptical says, I'm not going to believe without real evidence. And you didn't really believe in Belgium, what had taken place over there. Well, the easiest way to discover it would be go to Belgium and decide for yourself. Well, Peter runs into the empty tomb. And as he runs into the empty tomb, what he discovers is the very thing that the testimony of this woman was correct in the testimony of the angels, therefore. It's interesting because when Jesus tells the woman, go tell my disciples and Peter. And I wonder if, remember how Peter had denied Jesus thrice prior to this? If Peter no longer called himself a disciple. I wonder if Peter actually dropped out of the school of Jesus because he didn't feel worthy. I don't know. But Jesus has an appointment. And let me say, do you know what Jesus is doing here in all of this? He's going after his sheep is what he's doing. Whether it's the women, whether it's the doubters, whether it's Peter in this case, or whether it's the rest of the disciples. And we're going to see that here with the other two, the wanderers here in a moment. He's going after him. And no matter what hope has been robbed from you, no matter what has seeped out that you were hoping for, And I'm not here saying what you hoped for was a Bentley and you just keep asking and God's going to give it to you. God wants to give you that. Listen, listen, listen. Nothing is more important to God than your relationship with him. And he doesn't want to give you anything that takes you away from him. Why would he do that? I remember when we first bought our daughters the first iPods. And I said, whatever you do with them, don't let them interfere with a relationship with me. I don't want you to have them on... You kick on a set of headphones when I'm in there. I want to be with you. And it's amazing how things devolve if you're not careful. Like I wouldn't, you don't want to get things so you lose a relationship with someone unless you don't like them. And you're like, hey, here's two one-way tickets to wherever. But Peter went and he left marveled. He left amazed. If you will, he's kind of like the others in the sense he's greatly perplexed. He isn't really getting it all, and how could he? What's interesting is the one thing they're missing in all of this is his word to confirm why this is all taking place. If we base all of our things on experience, we're going to find ourselves in this place. So listen, we get to our story in verse 13. There's two guys, and they're walking, and it's rather humorous if you actually look at it. Because in the particular story we have here, there's two guys and they're leaving seven miles away from Jerusalem in a mouse. And they're leaving for good reason. The rest of the disciples have shacked up and are out of fear for the Romans coming after them. And so they're just basically, if you will, they're just fleeing. Now, we don't know how quickly they're fleeing, but at this point, I don't know how old they are either. But we just kind of get the idea these guys are leaving. We don't have one, one of the guys. We just don't know what his name is. The Bible never tells us. And the story is only in the Gospel of Luke. And it's the longest account of any one appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. Uh, in the other case, we have a guy named Cleopas who only shows up in, by the way, this story. So we only know him for what he says in this story. And Cleopas, by the way, means 
my father's celebration. Cool name. Interesting for the particular text. And with all of that, these two men are walking. And what's clear is they're bumming. They're really, really sad. And what we read is the kind of word that they're using here is a word that kind of means like they're kind of debating. So they're kind of, oh, what about and what about? And they're kind of, they're, you know how when you're kind of sad and angry, you're kind of angry, right? You know, you're kind of miserable enough that you just kind of want to throw the barbs and get the barbs and spite and feel spite. And, and that kind of stuff's all kind of happening. And Jesus, and you just got to love the humor here. You got to know God's full of a sense of humor. Because if he wasn't full of a sense of humor, just look around. You can see what kind of humor God has just by looking at each other. The fact that he stuck all of us in this room. And Jesus kind of goes in a loose paraphrase. He says, hey, guys, what are you talking about? Why are you so bummed? And you can see, I mean, they have no clue who he is. So they turn to him and they basically say, what? Have you been in like a cave or something where you're from, like outer space? <laughs> the only guy who has never really, didn't even know what took, took place in Jerusalem this last few days. And I love that Jesus doesn't bite into it in a way that he's like, you idiots. He just kind of looks and he goes, oh, really? What? Do you guys know what took place? What, well, what happened, guys? What is it? And they're like, Jesus is of Nazareth. Now, I don't know about you, but now think about what Jesus could do or not do at a moment. Like, would you say, well, what kind of guy was he? Did you like him? Was he cool? Was he handsome? You know, you know, you know, would you, you know, would your sister have gone out with him? I mean, think of all the things you could have asked. I Maybe mean, there's so many things. Jesus got up early in the morning before all of these guys. Think of the things he could have done then. He could have showed up at Pilate's house and said, the next time your wife has a dream, listen to her. Or he could have gone to the guards. Remember who beat him and said, prophesy who hit you now. And imagine he could just be invisible and be like, who hit you now? You know, I mean, the things he could do, but he didn't because it really wasn't his point. His point was that he was coming to get a sheep. So. Well, what was it? Jesus of Nazareth, mighty, weren't indeed, he was a prophet. And then these sad words, we had hoped. So these were guys who had hope, but they don't have hope anymore. And the lack of their hope now is what made them wander. They would have waited in Jerusalem if they really believed Jesus was going to be resurrected. They would have, but they didn't. Now, I don't know what's taking place in your life, but if you're the kind that really feels like hope has been robbed from you, then you kind of know how this feels. And these two guys are really bumming heavy. They are hurting inside because they have soaked their life into somebody now who's been taken from them. And they don't understand it. And because they don't understand it, Jesus looks and he hears this thing. Can you hear it just squeeze his heart? It's like, oh, guys... Now, at that moment, he could have gone, ta-da, here I am. And he didn't, interestingly enough. Instead, you know what Jesus does? He gives them a Bible study. You see, you know why you've lost your hope? Because you've gotten out of the Word and stopped trusting it. It's interesting because that's exactly what it says. When it says, hope deferred makes a heart sick, Proverbs thirteen twelve. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. And it's interesting because time and time and time again, what we find is the ho- word hope is attached with the word, your word. Psalm 119.74 says, Those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. Psalm 119.81 says, My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. Psalm 119, um, 119.114 says, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. 
So Jesus says then in verse 25, oh, foolish ones. The term we might use is daft. Ah, you thick-headed buddies. This isn't like, you bunch of idiots, stupid face, what's wrong with you? He's not doing that at all. You can almost see him giggle, oh, guys, how could you be so daft? Does ought not the Christ have suffered these things and enter into his glory? See, what they didn't understand was the suffering Messiah. They understood the one that came to kick rear end, but he didn't understand the one that came to suffer and die. What Jesus came to conquer first and foremost was the guilt of our sin. Not just some Roman Empire that, though they seemed eternal, were not. So we read in verse 27, At the beginning of Moses and the prophets, he expounded in them in the scriptures of the things concerning himself. So, what would that look like? Could you imagine that Bible study? 2,000 years before Jesus came in Genesis 22, when Abraham says God will provide himself a lamb. 1,500 years before he came, the lamb slaughtered with the blood on the lintel of the doorpost for the very feast that they're celebrating during this time. The lamb, and yet John would call him the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. A thousand years beforehand, David would write in Psalm 41, nine, even my own familiar friend whom I trusted has lifted his heel against me, who I ate bread with. We read in Psalm 22, by the way, verse 14, that all I'm poured out like water, my bones are out of joint, my heart melts like wax. We read in verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. Six hundred years before crucifixion was invented. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 69, they would write, those who hate me, hate me without a cause. And they gave me gall for my food. I believe that's verse 21. My thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. That was a thousand years before Jesus came. 700 years before Jesus came was Isaiah 53, where it tells us he was oppressed and afflicted, yet not opened his mouth was taken from prison to judgment. They made him a grave with the wicked, but a rich man at his death. Those are kind of interesting riddles that fully came to pass 700 years before Jesus was crucified and 300 years before crucifixion was invented. 600 years before was David, I'm sorry, Daniel in Daniel 9:25 and 26, where he prophesied the very day that Jesus would come. 500 years before and was Zechariah 13:5, when one will say, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Imagine that Bible study. From 3,000 to 2,500 to 2,000 to 1,500 to 1,000 to 700, 600, 500. In each case, has it not always been said that the Christ would suffer? As a matter of fact, it says this in Isaiah 53. So he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our sorrows he carried, and our griefs he bore, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was crushed for our iniquity, chastised for our sin and guilt. But it was such the crushing, by the way, of our peace came upon him, and by his stripes we were healed, because we all like sheep have gone astray, each went to our own ways, and yet the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You see, what God keeps constantly telling us is it's not just that the Messiah must come to suffer, but he came to suffer for the purpose of redeeming every one of us. 
So in verse 28, they desired, no, they're going to draw near. And now we're near to the end of this, so we can close this up. And as they were about to, to end this whole thing, Jesus looked like he was going to keep going. And these two guys now have had the greatest Bible study they've ever experienced. And I wonder how many times they sat under Jesus' teaching and wonder, oh, you know, I've heard someone expound on the scriptures like that before. And the only one who's ever, I don't know, we don't read any of that. All we know is that later they're going to say, when he opened up the scriptures, didn't our hearts burn? And so, so here they are, and Jesus is like, well, I'll keep going now. And they're like, no, 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 no. And we read that they compelled him. No, it is interesting to note, by the way, remember when Jesus first showed up, we read that their eyes were kept from seeing him. Interesting, because the word that's there is the word kratos. And kratos is the word we get, for instance, for democratic. Demos means people. Demokratos means people that rule. Kratos means to rule. What it literally says is that the reason they didn't understand or they didn't recognize Jesus is because their eyes were ruling them, is what was happening. They were so busy reasoning and they were so busy looking that they couldn't see what was right in front of them. And how many times does Jesus appear and they're like, who are you? You're a ghost. You're a spirit. You know, you're the gardener. It's amazing how it happens when your eyes are trying to rule instead of actually looking through the, the, the lens of faith. So there were those that were greatly perplexed. There were those who quickly dismissed. There were those who truly explored. But what happened when Jesus finally shows up? So Jesus is there. And what happens is they kind of go, please, please come in. And they try to compel him. And the word that's there, by the way, is parabiatomai. And parabiatomai means, by the way, to kind of really kind of force without forcing. We do that here. We go, oh, no, no, really. We really allow you to come. No, 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 no. I insist. And you kind of know, once you kind of pull out the I insist card, you kind of really kind of have to at that point. You know, and it's like, you know, the good news is usually it's something great. Well, that's where they're pulling with him. And finally, Jesus is like, oh, okay. I should be going, but I'll come in. And as they come in now, Jesus, by the way, being now the guest to these men, takes the bread in front of them that they're about to eat. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread up from the earth. And I wonder if that meant something different than they've ever heard it before. And he breaks it. He blesses it. He breaks it. And they go, Oh, man. And they recognize him. Listen, 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 please. The world has a tendency to see Jesus through the broken. It wasn't just when he blessed them that they saw it wasn't just when he blessed the bread. It was when he broke it that they went, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think I know who you are. I know who you are. And you might be afraid of getting broken. But the problem is Jesus promised whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But whoever the, whomever the stone falls upon will be crushed to powder. Which one do you want? Here's the good news. The reason God breaks so he can reinvent. There's the beauty in it. And it's amazing what he'll break from us because it's not where it's supposed to be. It's in front of him instead of behind him. Or it's even in competition with him altogether. So listen, listen. In all of that, the guys are like, whoa, 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 that was Jesus. And try to explain that now to people. So they run back. And I wonder how quickly they made that seven miles. And they get back and they're like, guys, 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 guys. Jesus is alive. We saw him. And I remind you, you have... The wanderers who have now found a home. You have the weepers who have now found comfort. But now it's the warriors who have been freaked out. And imagine what happens when he shows up at the door and they think the Roman soldiers are coming. They're like, oh, he's like, no, 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 guys, let me in, let me in, let me in. It's Cleopas. 
And imagine, for the whole history, we'll go clear us. Well, you'll be the guy in Scripture that said, what's wrong with you? Don't you know what happened to Jesus? That's the one thing we're going to know about the guy. So, so here it is. They get back and they're like, he's alive. And they're like, yeah, you know what? We got the same thing. The, you know, the Lord appeared to Peter. And while they were there, then Jesus showed up. And he's like, hey, guys. And they're like, oh. And they think he's a spirit. Jesus is like, how many different times do I have to show up before you know who I am? How many different ways do I need to show up before you recognize this is me? This isn't just something spooky or weird or esoteric. How many times do I have to show up in your life in such a way that you're finally like, that's the Lord. That's not Satan. That's not just me freaking out. That's not just me hearing voices. That's the Lord. And he's like, I'm here. What do I need to do? And they're still freaked out. He goes, well, touch my hands. Take a look for yourself. Touch my side. And they're like, ah. And finally he's like, okay, doing's not going to be enough. I'm going to have to just be. So he's like, you got any food? And imagine that. What a cool picture that would be. Wouldn't you love to just be there for that moment to see Jesus just eating a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb? While everyone else is like, ah. And he looks, he's like, why, why, why were you so afraid? It's interesting. For the weepers, he says, why are you weeping? I'm not dead. For the wanderers, don't you recognize what the scripture says? You wouldn't be wandering if you knew what the Scripture said. But for the worrier, he says, I'm here. Recognize that. How many times does Jesus say, fear not or cheer up? I'm here. It's me. I am. Listen, where are you today? Because you know what happens at the end? They all fall to their knees and they begin to worship Him. Listen. Jesus was declared by the spirit of power through the resurrection of the dead to be the son of God. When Jesus died on the cross, it was for all of our sins. The question is, how do we know it was enough? How do we know that we don't have to just keep doing crazy things or, you know, try to make sure that the Pope will vote us in or that we know the right people or whatever? Because you know the right person. Because, see, it's not about my works. It's not about my performance. It's about what Jesus has done for me. And how do I know it was enough? Because he rose from the dead to say all of the death that I have earned has been conquered and properly paid for and distinguished. And the only thing left is, will I accept that Jesus or not? Where is your hope? What is it founded on today? Because if it's founded on this world, you are on the Titanic. And I'm not trying to be a pessimist. I'm the biggest optimist I know. People are like, well, the world's falling apart. And we're like, we're Christians. We've been telling you that for, for millennia. It's about time you caught up with us. Please hear me as we go and to tell you what we're going to do next. For this, our Easter service, what we want to do is go back to a time of praise and invite you to communion today. Now, please understand what communion is. It's not a, just a rite of the church where what happens is you're going to close your eyes and someone's going to put this like plastic thing on your tongue or whatever. Listen, Jesus says, this is where I'm recognized is in the breaking of bread because what this shows is the body that I once had was broken because I love you so much, I chose to be broken so you could be made whole. Do you get it? All of that suffering, all of that grief, all of that brokenness, I took upon myself so that I could make you whole. When we partake of the bread, what we say is, Jesus, you really did die on the cross for me. You paid my price. I'm not going to try to earn your love. It's grace. You want to give it to me. So why wouldn't I take it? 
The cup, by the way, testifies of a covenant. Understand, a covenant's different than a contract, and it's different than a promise, because a covenant demands relationship. And it demands relationship as long as the two parties not are interested or are, are into it, as long as they live. We drink the cup because we recognize the reason Jesus even did this is because he'd rather die than live without us. Is that when we drink of the cup, what we're saying is, yes, Lord, I recognize you want to be with me. And I say, yes. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to pray. But let me ask you, how many of you here without a show of hands in your own heart, you know, how many of you today, you're just at that place today where you are just broken inside. You are, your whole heart's about weeping right now. And I'm here to let you know, Jesus says, I'm alive. And I'm, I'm, I'm over all of it. For those of you who are wandering and you're just like testing everything out, sticking a toe in every pool, Jesus is here to say, you need to be in my word. You would see how true things are and you'd stop wandering. And for those who are just overriddled by the worries of this world, Jesus is here to say, I'm with you. What do I have to do to prove that? And if that's the case, why would you worry? It's interesting because isn't that kind of the way that the seed fell? I mean, it fell among those who would just dismiss it, and then it fell among those who wouldn't take deep root, but then it fell, that, and then it fell among the thorns that the worries and cares of the world choked the life out. So I want to pray. And then after I pray, we're going to do some praising. But my prayer is today that the Lord would so meet you in this prayer, that he would so intentionally grab you right now, that when this time comes to praise, you will praise with open and, and clear voices. You'll say, yes, God, you're right. I may not get everything, but I got this. If you really did want to pay the price for all of my crimes of my heart on that cross and then resurrect to offer me a brand new life, well, then I'd be a fool to say no. I say yes today. And then after that, as we praise, as we worship our King, you are invited to come however and whenever you want. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, grab the items yourself. By the way, because we're kind of one of those newer churches, we have gluten-free as well as the regular, just want to let you know, in the cup. And then go sit down somewhere in this, in this sanctuary and renew your covenant with God. Say, on this day, on this Easter 2016, I recommit my life to you. Or... Jesus, I may never have said yes to you, but today I'm going to say yes. And I may not get it all, but I get this. You really did die and raise for me? I take these things and this is my yes. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you so much for the beauty of this text. I thank you so much for what you've done already in this time. And I thank you for the way that you work in us. And I pray today, right now, that as wherever we are, God, that you would confirm by your Holy Spirit exactly what's been said here, that we would get it. And we would recognize your truth in this, Lord. So, Lord, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would truly speak to our hearts. And God, as you speak to our hearts right now, show us the need to say yes. And for those, God, who have struggled, they don't get it. They've been worrying. They've been broken. They've been wandering. And they're so tired of it. But today, on this day, 
You have a better plan. So today, on this day, confirm that. And as we pray this prayer, I ask you to listen now, friends. And if you agree, at the end, I just ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And all you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I recognize that I am a sinner. I'm not perfect. You took all of my imperfections, all of the crimes of my heart. You took all of my wickedness. And you hung it on the cross with you. And as you died there, my price was paid. That I can stand innocent before you because my crimes have been punished. And now with that, because you rose again, I know that that was clearly enough. And you offer me a brand new life. A new life now with you as my Lord and with me as your love. And I say yes to that. Reinvent me in a way like I was intended to be created where I would have fellowship with you. And I say yes to you today. Please. Have me as I give myself to you in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say now, Amen.